0: This is God's Word. Listen to this. This is the postcard, one of the few postcards of the New Testament. So listen to this. Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. And Aphia, our sister. And Archippus, our fellow soldier. And the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bond servant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. And at the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we get to sit under it together. We thank you that we finally get to understand a book that knows us. Thank you for this gift of your word. Thank you for communicating who you are, for telling us how things started, for telling us what has gone wrong, for telling us what you are doing and have done to fix it, and for telling us where we are going. Thank you for giving us and giving our lives meaning and purpose. Thank you for giving us what we need to know you, to know ourselves. Thank you that we see all of this in Jesus. So we thank you for him. And we ask, Spirit, that you would lead us to Jesus this morning in new ways. Holy Spirit, keep us from getting bored with the gospel. Keep us from getting bored with the Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. So this morning, we're going to look at this idea together. Jesus is your life. Four words. Jesus is your life. I'm going to tell you the story to make sure we're all on the same page with this story of Philemon. I'm going to work back through this story and make sure we got what we read. And then we're going to look at takeaways. And I have four takeaways for you. So, Jesus is your life life. Let's jump into the story. You can tell that the Apostle Paul wrote this. He wrote it from prison. And notice in the first few phrases how he designates his opinion of being in prison, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, of Jesus Christ. Do you notice that? As if to say, no one else is going to take credit for me being here in prison. My life is completely bound up with Jesus. And where he sends me, I will go. Even if that is in a prison cell, even if that is under house arrest, it doesn't matter why I'm here, I am here because of Christ. How many of us would say that about the most challenging circumstances of our lives? The Apostle Paul is in Roman confinement. It's roughly the year 60. It's not too many more years before he dies. And he is there in prison, and it's from there in Rome that he sends this little postcard that is about 340 words in the original language to Philemon, to Aphaea and Archippus, which more than likely, they are more than likely Philemon's wife and his son. And the church that is meeting in Philemon's house. So here you have God, again, is always building His church. He's always had a people. And this church has always been connected. It's always been held together by the grace of God and the gospel. And here, Paul is riding from Rome to this little place in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, probably the west side of Turkey. And he sends these little, this little postcard, 340 words, to Philemon, probably his wife, his son, and to the church that is meeting in his house. You might wonder, well, why in the world is he sending this little postcard? Well, here is what happens. Hopefully, you picked up some of this as we read it together. There was a worker for Philemon whose name was Onesimus, and it appears as though Onesimus stole from Philemon and then tried to get out of Dodge and run away. So he stole from his employer and he ran away, and he made it all the way to Rome. Scholars tell us that during this time in Rome, there were about 870,000 people So he left this little village and went to this big city, like most people do, to try to get away and hide. Now, just for reference, the city of Charlotte is about the same size, roughly, approximately. So here's someone who is leaving a little small town in rural eastern North Carolina and running all the way to a big city to try to get away. And lo and behold, somehow... He ends up running into the Apostle Paul. Do you see that God is sovereign over everything? How many times in your life have you tried to run from something only to run into the very thing you didn't want to run into? Onesimus goes to Rome. He runs into the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul says to him, you know what? You need to know about this guy named Jesus. Jesus. The guy that not too many years ago, 20-ish years ago or so, lived, you know, the guy that was in Jerusalem, the guy that laid down his life for people like you and me, like thieves and robbers and adulterers, those that people that try to find meaning and hope outside of the living God. Yeah, like I was doing Onesimus, I thought I was honoring God by persecuting people that followed God. I thought they were all wrong and I was entirely right. And I built my life, Onesimus, around being right, only to discover that I was entirely wrong. And after some form of talking to Onesimus about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, the reality of his death and the historical reality of his resurrection, yes, life back from the dead. Victory over death. Somehow he communicated that to Onesimus and Onesimus was changed, profoundly changed. It tells you, this little postcard tells you that he was a changed man. So therefore, what he does is in sending this communication to Philemon and the church and Philemon's family, he says, you must receive Onesimus. And oh, by the way, Philemon, don't forget, God changed you too. Don't forget, Philemon. Don't forget that God spoke to your soul and plundered your soul and your entire life by grace. That happened to Onesimus too, Philemon. And oh, by the way, look at verse 22. Paul says, and make sure, Philemon, that you get the guest room ready because I want to come and see you. So, That's the essence of the postcard. That's, if you will, the first layer of this onion. Onesimus ran, found Paul, God changed him, God had changed Philemon, and Paul sends Onesimus back. Colossians 4 tells us that. So he sends Onesimus back to this house and to this church and to these people. Well, what in the world does this mean for our lives? So what? What are the takeaways? Well, here is takeaway number 1. And this is not going to be easy for me to talk about, but we have to. So we're going to do takeaway number 1 is real talk, okay? So what does the Bible have to say about slavery? Let's do some real talk here. This is a hot button issue, and we have to approach this issue through the Bible. I'm going to admit on the front end that I am not always the most eloquent in talking about these matters. They are very sensitive. They are very challenging, very nuanced. So I am still learning and I have a long way to go. But what does the Bible think about slavery? Because if some of you have some older translations, it talks about Onesimus being a slave. So what does this mean? Well, we're going to start here. First century slavery, first the idea of first century slavery is not the same as slavery in the South, the one that we're familiar with. The idea of Southern slavery is very different from what is being talked about in first century in Roman Empire. So what in the world is slavery in the South? Well, there was a famous speech I'm going to read read to you from in just a moment from a guy named Alexander Stevens. In 1860, 1861, when there was a lot of turmoil in our country, Abraham Lincoln was making all kinds of speeches, and there was much dissension in our country, so much so that seven states in the South decided that they were going to secede. Remember this? You've read about this a little bit? So there was a man named Alexander Stevens who was appointed as vice president of the Confederate States and he gave this famous speech called the Cornerstone Speech in March of 1861. Identifying what would be the essence of what it meant to be part of the South. This is what he said. Our new government is founded. It's Cornerstone rests, notice the Cornerstone speech, Cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. With us, all of the white race, however high or low, rich or poor, are equal in the eye of the law. Not so with the Negro. Subordination is his place. He by nature or by the curse against Canaan, that's a reference to Genesis 9, is fitted for that condition which he occupies in our system. Did you catch that? Did you catch? Can you take that in? That the black man is subordinate to white people. It's philosophical truth, it's a moral truth. And even here, there is reference to Genesis 9 and one of the curses. Now, maybe some of you are old enough that you were actually taught that at some level in Sunday school. I went to an institution that alluded to Genesis 9 as justification for this mentality. But hear me what I just read there by Alexander Stevens is antithetical to the Bible to God, to the gospel, to Jesus, and to the Holy Spirit. It is wrong, flat out wrong. And even if you have never heard anyone try to attach that view of thinking about another race to the Scriptures, even if you've never been taught the Scriptures in that way, a lot of us have experienced and live in situations in which it's just been that way. And we have a lot of room to grow. As the church in the United States, we have a lot of room to grow in understanding our relation to people of color and history and our responsibility with that and our ability to love our neighbor, and our ability to love people. The Bible in the first century in the Roman Empire is not the same thing as that. In the first century in the Roman Empire, the idea is that slavery was not tied to race. You could work for someone else and it didn't matter who you were. You weren't automatically a slave because of your race. Not only that, but in the first century in the Roman Empire, their system was set up such that those that they would, set, that they would consider as slaves actually had jobs that were not only uh, what we might call blue-collar, working in the field, working in the mine sort of thing, there were also white collar jobs, like managerial jobs, that were associated with those who were considered slaves in the Roman Empire. Even more than that, when someone became a slave in the first century in the Roman Empire, not only was it not attached to the race, not only could it be white collar and blue collar, but in addition, that individual was encouraged to have side jobs. And given space to do that so that they could become free and out from under that particular employer. And even beyond that, this is the point the goal was not ownership like it was in the South. What does the Bible have to say about slavery? Well, what happened in the Roman Empire is not what has happened in the South. It's not the same. What Paul is describing here, what the Bible is describing here is much more along the lines of not endorsing the institution, but kind of saying, let's think about how we live when things are kind of set against you. What Paul is communicating here is kind of saying, I'm not endorsing what's going on. What I'm saying is, let's figure out how to live when things in the system seem to be set against you. So that's takeaway number one. Let's go to number two. This little postcard is teaching us about motivation and maturity. Now, you might not see it originally. You might not have picked up on it when we read it. But if you look back through this book, and I hope you will read it again and again, what you will notice is that it shows us how the Apostle Paul, as a pastor and a minister and a fellow Christian, is trying to motivate someone else. And look at how he does it. Look at how verse 1-7 through grammatically and syntactically relates to verse 8. The first word of verse 8 is actually you have, what do you have? uh, Accordingly I think is what the ESV has. Yes. It could also be consequentially. In other words, Paul has kind of been making an argument with the first seven verses. And then he's drawing this conclusion. So let's walk through this. How Are we to be motivated in the Christian life? And how in the world can we as followers of Jesus motivate other people? Look at what Paul says about Philemon. He says, I have, look at the first few verses, the first seven verses. Let's summarize it quickly. I have heard of your faith toward God and love toward God and to all the saints. Do you see that? I have heard that you believe in the Lord Jesus. I have heard that you believe in God. In other words, that you have entrusted yourself to the love of the Father, and you have entrusted yourself to what Jesus has accomplished. I have heard that you are a man who has entrusted all that you are to the love of God and the work of Christ. And that that faith has spilled over into love, that because of believing, you now love God and you love all. All. So that your disposition, if someone were to look at you, and someone were to characterize who you are, they would say that you are a man of faith, and you are a man of love. It says nothing about skills. It says nothing about intellectual ability. It says nothing about accomplishments. It says nothing about respect from other people. It is that you are a man of faith, and you are a man of love. And your love extends to all. Even such that we find this concept at the end of verse 7. So that many people, look at what your text says in verse 7, are refreshed by you. Now some would say that that idea of refreshment actually communicates the concept of a backstop. Well, What in the world does that mean? Why is Paul saying that, Philemon, this is what I think about you. You are like a backstop, a spiritual backstop. Well, you know, in baseball, if you ever uh, have noticed this before, there's a guy that stands on a little hill, little mound, and he has a ball, and he pitches it toward home plate, right? And getting it to the catcher is actually a little bit harder than you might think. Just watch some of the celebrities that throw out the first pitch for games, Because what's supposed to happen is the pitcher is supposed to throw the ball to the catcher. And the catcher is supposed to catch it. And if he doesn't, then perhaps it hits some piece of padded body part that he has. And if it misses him, then hopefully it hits the umpire. But if it misses them, typically there's this thing in the background called a backstop. As if to say there are some people that pitch the ball who are wild. And they are not very accurate. And in not being accurate, thankfully there's a backstop that prohibits the wildness of the pitches from going everywhere and prohibiting the game from taking place. And Paul is saying, you Philemon function like a backstop, meaning that people have struggles and people have challenges and people have questions and they are all over the place and they don't always direct them to the, to the uh, space and the person that they should. But you have functioned as someone who can receive questions and receive burdens and receive doubts and you have been someone who has appropriately answered them. As if to say, Philemon's love overflows such that people know they can trust him, people know that they can take their doubts to him. Do you have someone you can take your doubts to? That people think of Philemon as someone that they can take the burdens that they have in their lives? Do you get a sense of this guy and his character? He's a man of faith and love, someone that people trust someone that people look to when they have questions and doubts and concerns and burdens and he's there. And Paul says, in light of all that, look at verse 8, again, the first word back to that. Consequentially, according to that, you need to receive Onesimus. In other words, Paul is telling Philemon, look, God is at work in your life. You're a man of faith. You're a man of love. You've, cha- you've been able to endure burdens and challenges and questions from others. According to all that, receive Onesimus back. I could command you, but I appeal to you out of love because I know you are a loving person I know that you've done all, this thing, all these types of things before. This time, Philemon, it might be a little bit more personal because this particular person stole from you. This particular person ran from you and abandoned you. And yet, I'm appealing to what God is doing in your life. Receive Onesimus. This is not only teaching us about motivation, That we should motivate one another based upon the gospel and what God has done in our lives, it teaches us also about maturity. The more we grow in the Christian life and the more we grow in our walk with Christ, the more we will be motivated to obedience by the gospel. Growing in the Christian life and becoming more mature in a following Jesus is not based upon knowledge, as if we're just brains on sticks, and if we just get our theological system more precise and more correct, and we can just answer more questions in a theologically correct way, we will grow. Not so much, although theology is good, learning theology is important. Like Paul says, knowledge puffs up. It's not that Paul is appealing and motivating Philemon here out of fear. Philemon, you know, if you don't receive Onesimus, God's going to get you. And have you all ever been discipled or been motivated by fear? How about by manipulation? Oh, Philemon. Philemon. If you don't receive Onesimus back, you're going to hurt your reputation. Philemon, receive Onesimus back so people will think well of you. Manipulation. He's appealing through the gospel. As we grow and grow and grow in our relationship with Jesus, our obedience comes more and more from the gospel, from what Jesus has done. Meaning we start to think about the issues of our lives through the gospel. We start thinking about our sexual brokenness. Anyone struggle with sexual sin? Anyone struggle with lust? Masturbation? Looking at pornography? You struggle with sexual things? Well, the Bible says this. Think about it from your relationship with Jesus. Don't you know that when we sin against our own body, it's as if we are dragging Jesus with us to the prostitute, to the porn site? Obedience is not supposed to be white-knuckling our way through commandments. Obedience, the more we grow, is through and by the gospel. So that we think about sexuality and we think about our sexual sins and our sexual struggles through our union with Jesus. So we think about our marriages, not what are the commands and I'm going to white knuckle my way through this marriage relationship. No. But we think about our marriages through the gospel and are motivated by the gospel. So that as husbands we want to die for our wives. I mean like die to our power, die to our presumed intelligence, die to our wisdom, die to our plan, die to our agenda. So that wives, we want to respect our husbands and honor them because that's the gospel. It means when we think about financial things. We're not just white knuckling our way through thinking about giving. God says 10%, therefore I'm going to white knuckle my way. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. But we think about giving through the gospel. In other words, what the Apostle Paul talks about in other places. Yeah, I could command you to give, tithing is commanded. But do you think about how much Christ has given you? He, who had infinite riches, became poor. So that me and you, people like us, because of his poverty, might become rich. Not necessarily financially speaking, although all of us are pretty well off relative to the world's standards. But that we might give in accordance with how we have been given. The more we grow, the more we're not just trying to find out what's the command and then white-knuckle our way through it. The more we grow, it's not that we're just thinking if I just get all my theology right, everything's going to be great in my life and I can fix myself and I can fix everyone else. The more we grow, we are motivated by the gospel itself, by what Jesus has done, by who he is, by wanting to be more like him. Third, this is the third takeaway we are challenged to look at every situation and every relationship through the gospel. This coincides with number two. Hopefully this will be somewhat of a smooth transition. The third takeaway is that we are, to, we are challenged to look at every situation and every relationship through the gospel. Look at verse 15. You see, Paul motivates and uh, uh, motivates Philemon and and. and talks about maturity and the way that the the book fits together in verses 1 through 8. But then look at how he challenges Philemon and us to look at every situation and every relationship through the gospel. Look at what he says in verse 15. Philemon, do you understand that God has been at work here? Onesimus stole from you and left. He's gone. He came to me. He ended up running into me. And don't you see what's happened Because he ran into me, he was changed. His heart and his soul was plundered by the grace of God and the love of God, and that completely changed his entire identity. Look at verse 15 again. Philemon, don't you understand that maybe he left you temporarily so that he might return to you forever? God has been at work changing Onesimus, working through this sin, working through this rebellion. God has been working so that as Onesimus returns to you, Philemon, you're not going to receive him temporarily. Matter of fact, Onesimus is never going to leave you, Philemon. And you know what? You're never going to leave him. You're going to be with him forever. The Apostle Paul is thinking about restoration. He's thinking about eternity. He's thinking about what God has done that has changed the course of history for Onesimus and the course of history for the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. Look at every circumstance in your life and every relationship through the gospel. What God is doing, that God is at work, that he doesn't change, that he is in the business of changing people, glorifying himself. Therefore, that means you always got to leave room for God to work in your life. And I say that somewhat sarcastically because we like to get our routines down and have things in a certain way. We like to have uh, people approach us in a certain way, and if they don't, then perhaps we're not interested. We want people who think like we do. But what if God has completely different plans to where He wants to challenge us at the deepest level? Because God is working on us and changing us. And that leads to the fourth takeaway, and it's this the cost of forgiveness. The cost of forgiveness. What we find when you read back through this little book is you have all three components of what forgiveness is in terms of what God says about forgiveness, what God says about actually doing the hard work of forgiveness. Look at verse 18 and 19. 17, 18, and 19. We'll start with verse 17. Here's the first step of forgiveness. Receive. Philemon, receive Onesimus. in other words he is commanding Philemon he is telling Philemon not so much commanding but appealing out of love to Philemon kill your hostility fight your hostility you were right Philemon Onesimus was wrong but God did something that neither of us saw coming receive him don't put him out don't reject him and at a deeper level, fight your hostility. Be willing to deal with you wanting to be right in this situation, but God had other plans. Humble yourself, receive Him. Step two same phrase, just the next few words of verse 17. Receive Him as you would me. Right? See that in verse 17? Receive Him as you would me. In other words, don't just receive Him because we can all play that game. We can play nice sometimes when we have to, but here it says, receive him as you would me. If you want to know what forgiveness is, it's not just receiving someone and playing nice. It is receiving someone as a follower, a fellow follower of Jesus. He doesn't mean receive him as an apostle. (laughs) He's saying, receive Onesimus as you would me, A Fellow follower of Christ, a fellow sinner who has been forgiven, a fellow rebellious person whom God has loved, someone who now loves the gospel, someone who now loves Jesus, someone who now wants to promote Jesus. Receive him as you would me. That's hard, right? That's a hard part of forgiveness, isn't it? Receiving someone back as a fellow follower like where you can't hold a grudge? That's hard, isn't it? How about this one? Here's the third component of forgiveness. Look at verse 18 and 19. Philemon, whatever he owes you, put that on my account. He's not even He's asking Philemon to absorb the cost of Onesimus' departure, and Paul is saying, "I'll pay it." The third component of forgiveness, if you want to understand what forgiveness is, you have to receive people, you have to receive people as fellow followers of Jesus, and you have to be willing to absorb the cost of their sin. You have to be willing to absorb the cost of the hurt. And the pain and the frustration, if you're going to forgive someone, you have to be willing to absorb the cost of that forgiveness. And that is an ongoing decision. That is a mentality. That is a disposition. That is, in some instances, a daily decision to not hold something against someone. Because if you don't forgive, you'll be chained to your past. You won't move past it, whatever it is. If you won't forgive, you'll never move past it. In many ways, that's how you can tell when someone hasn't truly forgiven because they can't move past it. If you don't forgive, you won't move beyond your past. And if you don't forgive, That lack of forgiveness, I think someone has said this somewhere, I'm sure this didn't originate with me. That lack of forgiveness becomes the food of bitterness. So you'll become resentful and bitter and hateful. And you'll begin to build up walls toward others because you're chained to your past, because I'm chained to my past, because I won't forgive. So, forgiveness is receiving. Forgiveness is receiving as a fellow follower of Christ. And receiving, excuse me, forgiveness is absorbing the cost of forgiveness and being willing to take the cost of that forgiveness and all the pain that that means, and all the hardship and all the difficulty. Does that sound familiar? Does that remind you of someone? The only reason that the Apostle Paul can say this to Philemon is because he knows what he has been forgiven of by Jesus. The only reason Philemon would ever want to forgive Onesimus is because Philemon was more deeply aware of what Jesus had done for him. Friends, how many times does Jesus say to you and me, put that on my account? How many times a day do you think Jesus says to his Father on your behalf, put that on my account, Dad? How many times does Jesus say that for us? Have you forgotten what it cost Christ to forgive you? To make you right with God? To cancel your debt so that God would receive you maybe there's an area of your life in which you need to take in more deeply where Jesus has paid for you I hope you will where is it in your life that you need to know more and more of the reality that Jesus has said put that on my account I will absorb the cost of that sin. Where do you need that in your life? You haven't moved past that yet, have you? Do you think you'll ever move past that? Are you hoping to move past that? Where is it that you need to look at others and be willing to absorb the cost of forgiveness? Where is it? We're supposed to be a people that are living out the gospel, that are motivated by the gospel. We're supposed to be a people that are looking more and more like Jesus. What Paul is saying to Philemon is the same thing he's saying to himself and the same thing he'd say to us. What God is saying to us is that we are supposed to live every day, every moment, every circumstance, every relationship with a conscious awareness that Jesus is our life.